I appreciate the power of visual cues. About six months into my ministry in Newberry, I had a disgruntled member lodge a complaint against me saying that I wasn't preaching from the Bible, but I, in his words, was preaching from a paper. And I took a bit of offense at that because I've always been deeply convictional about expository preaching and, and God's people being in the text. And what I realized was that I just I needed to lift my Bible off the pulpit more often so that they could see this is what I was preaching from. And I understand, and I, I hate the visual cue of you all seeing me take the Bible and set it aside before I preach, okay? It's just because I'm more comfortable with this one, all right? So don't take that as any indicator that we're setting aside God's Word. Um, in fact, why don't you turn with me to Judges chapter 13. I do want to say, um, as Russell prayed, personally, over the past month or so, the Lord has really used the public readings to bless my soul. And so I know those of you who get up here and read feel like, you know, that's just part of your Sunday morning duties. You get up and you sit back down. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much for that. That is a really vital part of our time together. And the Lord has been speaking to me through you. So thank you so much for those of you who do our public readings. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, so if you haven't found it there, just count seven books in. Seventh book, easy to remember, there are seven cycles of sin in the book of Judges. And uh, this book is one that's basically just one long narrative, with the exception of Deborah's song in chapter 5, which even then that falls within the story structure of the book. And I was looking at Judges 13 this week and was reminded of uh, some advice that I received way back when in seminary from Dr. Jonathan Pennington. He was giving advice about preaching narratives. And uh, he used to say, when you preach a narrative, two-thirds of your sermon should simply be spent doing a dramatic retelling of the story. Two-thirds spent on simply reliving the story aloud together, scene by scene, line by line, frame by frame, which on its face can seem kind of wasteful. Can't we just read the story for ourselves at home? Why should we spend two-thirds of this time together just rereading the story? When the really valuable thing about God's Word is whatever kernels of truth we can carry away from this time together, right? We go for the kernels, we throw the husk out. In fact, this isn't just how we approach the Bible on Sundays. I would bet for a lot of us, this is exactly how we read God's Word during the week for ourselves. We open the Bible, we get that nugget of wisdom that fuels us for the day, we close our Bible, we go on with our day. And if I don't get those nuggets of wisdom, then it's kind of time wasted. I can see some of you already like wagging your heads. I'm speaking a little facetiously here, but brothers and sisters, do we really believe that God's word is more valuable to us than simply whatever things we can get out of it. In just a moment, we're going to read a story about 
two people who spent some quality face-to-face time with the Lord and came away from it totally confused and afraid that they might die. But God was saving them. And just like Manoah and his wife, here we are about to have an encounter with God's Word. Not simply for me to get up here and serve up little nuggets that I extracted from this week's text. And we may walk away from our time together with the Lord, believing, or maybe dismayed and confused. But we have to choose to believe that regardless of how we feel or what we walk away from this text with, God is at work saving us. So why don't we let the Spirit sow the kernels this week. Let's you and I be found in the text. And I trust that as we hear the words of our Lord, they are a sign to us not of our destruction, but of our salvation. Well, you've probably seen the heading of chapter 13, and I bet that even the most unchurched among us know this name. Judges chapter 13 is the beginning of the most famous, or we might say infamous character of the book of Judges, and I would say probably of the whole Old Testament. We've got the birth narrative of Samson. So if we rewind it back to chapter 10, that was the last time we recycled. And that was cycle number six. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them into the hands of their enemies. The people cried out that something weird happened in the sixth cycle. Normally God sends a Savior, but that time He said, you know what? We all know what's going on here. Enough is enough. I'm not sending a Savior this time. But rather than God's people questioning whether their repentance was real or just performative, they just moved on to plan B. Well, if God won't send us a Savior, we'll find the one that's suitable. And they went and found one for themselves, and that is the story of Jephthah. A man whose story ends not with the slaughter of their enemies, but slaughter of tens of thousands of Israelites. Two whole chapters of God's people trying to do things their own way, trying to save themselves, and let's see how that salvation ended. Was it long-lasting? Chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So God's people took matters into their own hands, and they fell right back into the exact same hole. Recycled. People do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord gives them into the hands of the Philistines. And if you've been keeping count now, this is the seventh time this has happened. One cycle of sin for every wicked nation they cast out of the promised land. They were supposed to wipe the land clean, fill it with righteousness. Seven cycles later, the land is now filled with the exact same sin and unrighteousness and evil and wickedness, except this time it's not the pagan nations that have done it. It's God's own people. And so in a sense, Judges 13 is where we have arrived at a place where God's people have finally become just like the nations they were sent there to replace. 
We've officially hit rock bottom. And we know that because something different happens in cycle 7 that happened in cycles 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. The people are sold into the hands of the Philistines, and this time, what doesn't happen? They don't even bother to cry out for help. Israel has given up on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have sunk so deep in sin that when they become enslaved, they're just content to let it continue indefinitely. Was God worried? No, actually, God's been waiting for this moment. Because when his people hit rock bottom, when they are so enslaved to sin, they don't even cry out for salvation anymore. That's when God can finally send the Savior that the people never even asked for. And that's where the story of Samson begins in verse 2. Let's look there together. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now I'm going to ask you to go all the way back to our series where it began in Judges chapter 1. Maybe you remember the tribe of Dan. They were the very last ones spoken about as we went through all the tribes and the places where they were supposed to conquer. And if you remember, the Danites were the least successful of all 12 of the tribes. In fact, they had zero success And all it said of them is that they couldn't even engage the Canaanite peoples in battle and were forced to live in the caves in the mountains. So, of course, of course, this is the tribe that God's going to use in order to send the Savior that people didn't ask for. Uh, Not only that, he's going to use a barren woman, a barren woman from a barren tribe, among a barren people. This is a situation that only the Lord could redeem. And that's exactly how God likes it. So the angel of the Lord tells the woman that she will in fact conceive, that she will in fact have a son, and he gives specific instructions. Three of them. Do not drink wine or strong drink. Secondly, do not eat anything unclean. And thirdly, Don't cut the baby's hair because, verse 5, the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Nazarite, if you're not familiar, is just uh, a specific type of person set apart in the law for the purposes of God. And if you want to read more about the rules for Nazarites, um, they're there in Numbers chapter 6. Okay, so the angel is just listing the requirements that are there in the law of Moses. And God says of these kinds of people, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. 
And the angel actually says, what is this special purpose that this baby's been set aside for? It says, to begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, here he is. This is the Savior that God's people didn't ask for. Verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he did say to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, we look at these verses, and I bet the temptation when you come upon these parts of the stories in the Old Testament is, we've heard it already. This is literally repeating everything that just happened in the verses previous, and so our temptation is to hurry through and get on to the action. And uh, I just want to push the brakes a little bit and ask, why What is it about us that we are in such a hurry to get through these repetitious parts of the Bible? We get impatient when the Bible repeats itself, but, I mean, even today, we repeat things that are important. Let me say that again. We repeat things that are important. One of the reasons we speed through these repeated sections is I think sometimes we assume that what we're reading is a word-for-word repeat, but that's not how repetition works in the Old Testament. Often a Hebrew writer will repeat himself in order to change one thing. Look at verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5, okay? For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, how does the woman repeat the angel's message looking at verse 7? For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. This is what we call foreshadowing. So when the storyteller gives us a hint of where the story's headed, how it's going to end, somehow this Nazarite will begin to save God's people from the hand of the Philistines on the day of his death. The Nazarite cut off from his people for God's purposes will be cut off for his people's Salvation. Maybe we shouldn't speed through the repeated parts of God's word because we're missing some of the important truth that's there. You just have to be looking for it. That's a pro tip you can take along with you for the road. Anytime you find God's word repeating itself, don't assume it's all word for word. Look for that subtle change. The devil is in the details. Probably not the best way to put it, but... uh, Uh, One other interesting uh, omission, Manoah's wife, for some reason, in her recounting of the angel's message, seemed to leave off instruction number three, which dealt with what? Cutting his hair. Methinks that might be important. 
We'll see as the story unfolds over the next couple of weeks. Well, Manoah feels kind of left out in this whole thing. The angel comes, visits his wife while she's out in the field. He's not with her, and he feels a little offended. So verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. You know, once, maybe an accident, but twice now this has happened. Twice the angel has gone to Manoah's wife, who, by the way, is not named this entire chapter. Did the angel just, you know, have it, the appointment down wrong on his iPhone or something? This is the third time in Judges God has passed over a man to use a woman. The first one was Jael and Sisera. We know how that one turned out. The second one was that nameless woman who dropped a millstone on top of Abimelech. And now Manoah's wife. You know, it's almost like women play a huge part in God's plan of salvation. In fact, I can't recall exactly where this is, but it rings a bell. There's some story where like a man and his wife fall into sin and then God comes and says that he's going to send a savior through the seed of that woman's offspring. Maybe you remember what chapter of the Bible that's from. It's in there somewhere. Anyways, the woman, the angel comes. She runs this time before he gives the message, gets her husband, verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man came to me the other day, the the one that came to me the other day has appeared to me. Notice, by the way, how both of them are still operating under the assumption that this is a man and not an angel. It's interesting. Verse 11. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, verse 12, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing, all that I commanded her observe. Does the angel of the Lord tell Manoah anything that he didn't already say? No, he does not. This is a very uncooperative angel. Manoah tries another approach. Verse 15. Manoah said to the angel, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. I think we've gathered that so far. He is not reading this situation properly at all. Verse, uh, let's see, where do we leave off? Verse 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? 
So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. And they fell on their faces to the ground. Then the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Just imagine for a moment you're standing around a campfire. And you're talking to someone you assume is a human being like yourself. And as you're grilling whatever it is, hot dogs, hamburgers over the fire, something flits into your peripheral and you see that person run, jump into the fire, and disappear into heaven. That's the experience that Manoah and his wife have in this moment. The angel of the Lord jumps into the fire, becomes the sacrifice, and ascends up into heaven. And all of a sudden, in that moment, Manoah and his wife realize this is not a man. Verse 21 Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And this is how he responds, verse 22. Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So we have Manoah. He's on the one side, totally freaking out. That was not a man. It was God. I mean, did you see how he just jumped into that fire? But then we have Manoah's wife who speaks peace into the situation. Verse 23, But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or show us all these things or announce to us such things as these. And then sure enough, the angel's words come true. Verse 24, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Samson, the Savior no one asks for, is born. Well, if you've been following our series through the book of Judges, the events of today's story should feel a bit like deja vu because this has already happened in Judges chapter 6 with a man named Gideon. You remember that story? The angel of the Lord appears. Gideon thought he was talking with a man and not God. The angel talks about saving Israel. Gideon offers bread and a goat on a stone. And when the fire is lit, the angel jumps into the fire and goes back up to heaven. Gideon realizes he's seen the Lord face to face and assumes, I'm going to die. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, Peace to you. You will not die. It's like the same story. Who is this angel that keeps on showing up who looks like a man but is actually the Lord himself? Who is this person whose name is, in his own words, wonderful? Reminds me of that Christmas verse. You know that one from Isaiah chapter 9? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given... And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is this God-man whose name is wonderful, coming to speak a message of salvation and peace to God's people? It's a character who's supposed to stay in the New Testament. One who's been there all along. The Son of God Himself. There are only a dozen or so places where the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament. We see him comforting Hagar in the wilderness. He appears to Abraham to stay his hand just as he's about to sacrifice Isaac. He appears to Moses at the burning, at the burning bush. We already mentioned when he came to Gideon. And then here he appears to Manoah and his wife, two insignificant people from a barren tribe in a barren land. And when they offer goat, grain offering on a rock, he does the most bizarre of things. He himself becomes the sacrifice. Jumps into the fire and ascends into the heavens. Look again at Manoah's wife and how she interprets everything that has taken place in verse 23. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Their sacrifice was was accepted. Which one? The goat and grain? I don't think so. This, brothers and sisters, is what we call foreshadowing. (laughs) You know, when the author of the story tells us where it's headed long before it happens... The angel of the Lord told them that Samson would begin to save God's people. And as they watch that angel go up in flames, we see who's going to bring an end and finality to the salvation of God's people. God the Son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for our sins, who ascended into heaven and was fully accepted for our forgiveness and salvation once and for all. Well, before we part, I I do want us to shift gears here and and talk a little bit about what what we've read. I know we have a lot of Chick-fil-A employees or former employees here, so I don't want us to have an anti-nugget atmosphere here. We are not against nuggets. Uh, So I will share with you a few nuggets you can take home with you, all right? So let's just look at each of the three fully human characters that we have here, Samson, Manoah and his wife. Now, Samson only appears in the last two verses of the story, but this is really all about his provenance and his entering into this, the plan of God's, uh, God's plan of salvation. And, you know, you read about Samson, and you're like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, I knew that from before I was born, God had a plan for exactly how I fit into what he's doing in salvation history from before I was born until the day of my death. And I just knew God knew exactly what he was doing every moment of my life. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And wouldn't it be amazing if if God actually sent his spirit to dwell inside of me so that I could go out and do amazing and mighty and good works for the sake of his kingdom and the salvation of his people? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God has done. Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before as even one of them came to be. Or Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has no accidental creatures. There are no NPCs of the universe. Right? No non-playable characters that are just people wandering around purposeless. That's not how it works. By His Spirit, God has set you apart for His holy plan, and your job is Samson's job. What is to be my manner of life? What is my mission? Trust God's plan and obey His commandments. Your job is not to discern God's plan. Make sure you don't mess up God's plan. Be paralyzed with fear that somehow you ruined God's plan. I mean, we're about to read the rest of Samson's life. If you want to see someone who was bound and determined to try to ruin all of God's plans, it doesn't really get worse than Samson. And yet, on the day of his death, God used him to begin to save his people from the hands of the Philistines. And so if Samson could not ruin God's plan for his life, you've got nothing to worry about. Trust. And do the thing Samson won't do. Obey. Trust and obey. Leave the plan to God. You just follow Jesus. Well, let's look at Manoah for a second. God intervenes into this man's life and the life of his family. And this guy is thrown completely out of sorts. He's jealous. He's proud. He's confused. He's afraid. He's asking for extra messages from God, even though the first one was perfectly clear. He's running around trying to serve up things to this man of God in hopes of somehow, you know, cultivating or persuading God to bestow his favor on him. You know, we all have our goats and our grain that we love up to serve to God, love to serve up to God. Uh, God, here's an extra helping of church attendance. That makes you happy. I know you like that. And some Bible reading. Did you see how nice I was to that homeless person last week? God, won't you, won't you bestow your favor on me? Don't kill me. And even after all of that and all the extra signs and wonders God gives to this man, Manoah, the angel receives the offering, goes back up to heaven, and still Manoah interprets everything that's happened in chapter 13 as a flashing Las Vegas-style neon sign saying this, God intends to kill you. And before we look too harshly on this man, I would wager to guess that there are circumstances in your life and no matter how many ways God demonstrates His grace and His mercy to you, you interpret what is happening to you as being a message that God intends to kill you. If God really loves me, why would He do this? 
How can God really be merciful and put me through something like this? If his plan is for my salvation, why does it feel like he's destroying me at every turn? God can't be good. I cannot trust him. He cannot be unswervingly merciful. He can't be love. And I better not turn my back on God for one second because the moment I do that, he's going to strike me dead. When the circumstances of our lives are frustrating and discouraging and dismaying, we can choose to believe that all these things fit together and are only a confirmation that the God of heaven is at war with us. Or we can choose to believe despite all of our feelings and all the ways we might interpret things, that our God is about making peace with us. Which God will you choose to believe in? Manoah's version of God? Or the God who testifies thusly about himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Brothers and sisters, we have read Judges 1 through 13. Can we deny that this is not the God that we've seen on the pages? Patient over and over and over again, sending Savior after Savior after Savior every time God's people turn away and God is patient again. Nothing about Manoah's story, nothing about the entire story of Judges proclaims anything other than what God has already testified to be true. So may we choose to believe not our conception of how God must be based on our interpretation of our circumstances, Let's choose to believe God's own testimony about himself. We can harden our hearts against the Lord like Manoah. Or we can choose to receive the testimony of his wife. You see, she experienced the exact same circumstances as he did. And interpreted them in the exact opposite way. Rather than believing that all these things were a sign of God's judgment, she says in verse 23, if the Lord had meant to kill us, why would he have accepted our offering? Why would he have shown us all these things? Why would he have gone to the trouble of announcing that he's going to save us in the first place? When it came down to it, the irony of this story is that the barren one is the one who's ready to believe. In fact, She's given no other name. We're told the name of the man was Manoah. And his wife? Barren. That's all we know about her. The barren one, that's the one who has the eyes to see the face of God and live. The church is filled with people who have no other name in this world than these barren destitute, burnt over, lost cause. And the temptation can be, after all those years have passed, 
of God withholding that thing that you so desperately desire, we might doubt that God, the one who left us destitute for so long, that the, the God that we've been resenting despite our best efforts for all these years, that he might have actually been working for our salvation all along. Is it really so impossible that he actually loves you? The encouragement of the barren woman this morning is this. Do not lose heart. It's the barren one that Jesus has come to save. It's to the barren people that the Father has sent his Son. It's the barren land that God plans to make fruitful forever. So, brothers and sisters, let us not lose heart. Let us trust and obey. Let's pray together.